You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hey, uh, before we get started, I wanted to welcome another new show to the Hub and Spoke stable. It's called Rumble Strip, and it's hosted by independent producer Erica Heilman, who interviews everyday people throughout the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont. On Rumble Strip, you'll hear from artists and criminals, taxidermists and soccer moms, lawyers and waitresses. Erica Heilman invites herself into people's homes to find out what they know, what they hate, who they love, what they're afraid of, and what makes them more like you than you'd realized. These are vivid stories of the everyday. It's been lauded by BuzzFeed, The Atlantic, Audible Feast, and both Wired and IndieWire who put aside their intractable blood feud to agree on just how wonderful Rumble Strip is. Find it wherever you listen to this show, or go to rumblestripvermont.com, or to hubspokeaudio.org to check out all the shows, old and new, that call Hub and Spoke home. Now, speaking of Hub and Spoke, let's hear that cute little bike bell and get going. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. The question was, who'd been slitting Elena's tires? The first time Elena's tires were slit, she figured it was a random event, some meaningless bit of arbitrary vandalism. But I was suspicious from the start. Because it seemed to me, slitting tires was a very personal thing, a vindictive thing. You don't slit someone's tires unless you've got a bone to pick with them. Or else, I suppose, a bone to pick with their car, but that doesn't make much sense, does it? A year or so before that, I had bought my first car. The most ill-advised vehicular purchase imaginable. A 1979 Fiat Spider convertible. I dropped every last cent I'd earned in my 19 years of dumbass life into that thing. And then I proceeded to drop every cent thereafter into trying to keep it running. So it was like a small mercy when I woke one morning to find that somebody had keyed it, ripped up the top, slashed the upholstery, and javelined a small tree into it. I had decided when the spider was destroyed that it had been about the car, that somebody had been jealous of its swooping rusted lines and its Italian pseudo-cool. Yes, it occurred to me that I'd been screwing around recklessly with a potentially vindictive Latvian woman, and yes, it had occurred to me that said potentially vindictive Latvian woman had a skinhead boyfriend whose vindictiveness was more demonstrated than potential, but still, it was just easier to say it was about the car and move on. But when it happened to Elena's nondescript, non-Italian automobile in her off-street parking space, I knew it had to be calculated. But she said no. It was the stochastic cruelty of an indifferent universe that had slit her tires. The second time her tires were slit, though, 
I knew I was right. And I probably knew on some intellectual level that Elena was a person capable of having her own secrets and mistakes and enemies, but in my heart of self-important 20-year-old white boy hearts, I knew that this had to be about me. I'd been functionally living with Elena for a few months now, and that, I assumed, made her a target. For the Latvian woman I'd dicked over, or her skinhead boyfriend, or who knows who else I might have given an axe to grind. I did, and I didn't like to think about it, thank you very much. So I set up a little feel-out, a little detective scene with the Latvian woman, invited her to meet me at a run-down nameless bar down the street with a Michelob sign out front, which we just called That Michelob Place. That Michelob Place was the perfect setting for the tire-slashing noir thriller I was writing in my mind. Barely lit, covered in a quarter inch of sticky dust, filled with roughnecks, problem drinkers, and a thick Venn diagram of the two. Including, I remember vividly, the drunkest man I had ever or have ever seen in my life, who sat next to me and the Latvian woman at the bar, mumbling incoherently through his bulbous, red, gout-ridden nose. I tried to subtly feel her out, see if she'd give up a hint about her involvement in the tire slitting without me getting all j'accuse on her. I can virtually guarantee I did a bad job of gumshoeing, but I remember walking out behind the stumbling, mumbling Rudolph of a regular, almost convinced that I had been wrong. And then, Elena's tires got slit again. But this time it was different, because we were there to see it. As I remember, we were maybe having a fight? That might not be correct. But what I know for sure is that it was the middle of the night, and we were on her back patio when we saw a shadowy figure sidling up the gravel driveway towards Elena's car. A shadowy figure with a knife and, more importantly, a bulbous, red, gout-ridden nose. In stupefied silence, we watched him shamble his way up to her car and attack it once more. As it turned out, the tippler lived just behind Elena's apartment building, giving him a straight shot up the gravel driveway through to that Michelob place. And Elena's car represented an unacceptable detour from his regular route. Two steps to the left. What do you know? It was about the car, after all. This week's story is a mystery, and it's about cars. But it's not about something as simple as tire slitting, no. This week's story is about windshields. Oh, did you think I was joking? No, no, this one is about windshields, all right. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, A Pain in the Glass. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, 
invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The question was, who'd been pitting Marty's windshield? It was 1954 in Bellingham, Washington, about 90 miles north of Seattle. One Saturday morning in late March, Marty woke up, drank his coffee, ate his eggs, mowed the lawn, and then, finally, got down to the chore he'd been waiting for, washing the car. The day before, Marty'd been moved by a slick-talking salesman to pick up a new so-called car shampoo. And lest you think that's going to be material to this story, I should tell you right now that all of this is made up. There was no car shampoo, no car washing, no coffee and eggs, no Marty, even. I know, it makes me sad, too. But unfortunately, the available record of events doesn't tell us precisely how or with whom the mystery began. So Marty is a fiction. But don't let that bother you. Somebody had to be the first to notice, and it might as well have been Marty Cloven of Bellingham, Washington. When Mr. Cloven went to try his new car shampoo, no, there was no such thing, he was pleased with the results. On Friday, as Marty walked past to pick up a tuna sandwich from O'Brien's, Keith Horsley, the fast-talking sleaze over at Horsley Power Automotive, had clucked at him about his car. Looking a bit grimy there, Marty, he'd said. Wouldn't want the boys at Rotary to get the wrong idea, would you? Marty didn't think his car was particularly grimy. He thought, in fact, that it was Horsley who was the grimy one. But Keith had hooked into his deepest insecurity, the judgment of the Rotary Club, smarmy glad-handers. So after a bit more cajoling, he purchased the car shampoo. And now on that Saturday morning in March of 1954 in Bellingham, Washington, Marty was beginning to see what Keith Horsley had meant. After a quick suds and rinse, the old 1951 Hudson Hornet was looking real spiffy. The chrome was shining, the silver detailing was spangling, the windshield was... Hmm, and what's that? When Marty looked closely at his windshield, he saw a little pit, like a bubbly bullseye. And another, and another, five, six, seven of the buggers. Well, what the heck, Marty huffed under his breath. There were little holes and divots all over his windshield. He was frustrated, angry, perplexed. He walked across the street, hands on his hips, head shaking, to Howard Luft, who was watering his lawn. Hey, you Marty, hot enough for you? Howard asked, although it was not at all hot. It was March in northern Washington. That was the joke, see? Howard was the funny one. Last New Year's, he made a particularly memorable yuck when he pretended to mistake Marty's wife for his own and planted a hilarious kiss on her as the ball dropped. Then he kissed her again. And a third time. Much longer. It was very, very funny, Marty insisted to himself. Howard, I got the darndest thing over here with my car. You mind taking a look? Sure thing, Smarty, said Howard, and this too was funny because Howard did not think Marty was smart. They were best friends. Howard thought it looked like maybe somebody, the Schultz's kid probably, had been shooting BBs at Marty's windshield. Then Howard went back to his garage and looked at his windshield. Wouldn't you know it? It was all dinged up too. Now we're entering the phase of the story that is purely factual. And so we must say goodbye to Marty and Howard. I know, I'm sad too. Somewhere around the 23rd of March, several residents in Bellingham called the police, who arrived on the scene and also concluded it was probably BB gun vandals who were to blame. Police canvassed the neighborhood and eventually the town, asking residents if they'd seen anything funny or noticed any damage to their cars. They also did random checks, 
with beat cops glancing at parked cars around the city. What they found were dozens more damaged windshields. It was starting to look like the BB Vandal of Bellingham was a real go-getter. The next week, reports of pitted windshields came in from Sadro Woolley and Mount Vernon, 25 miles south of Bellingham. Whatever was responsible, it was on the move. Newspapers and radio began reporting on the mysterious rash of pitted glass from the Canadian border down to Seattle, but it was still a minor story, a blip in the headlines. On April 13, 1954, that all changed. It was early morning in Anacortes on Fidalgo Island when the calls started coming in. Cars throughout the downtown were suddenly showing pits, dings, and holes. Police rushed in to try to track down the culprits without luck, so they closed down the bridges to and from the island, Deception Pass to the south and the Swinomish Channel Bridge to the east. Nobody could get in or out of Fidalgo Island without encountering a police checkpoint. Whoever was responsible, they weren't going to get away with it. Several hours and hundreds of constitutionally questionable vehicle checks later, the Anacortes police had nothing. Then came the reports from Oak Harbor. Just south of Anacortes, on Whidbey Island, Oak Harbor was home to a naval air station. In the afternoon, while Fidalgo Island was still under lockdown, more than a dozen cars in the naval station parking lot were found damaged. The base, too, was sealed up, and 75 Marines were put onto a five-hour search of the premises. They, too, could find no one and nothing to blame. By the end of the night, from Bellingham to Oak Harbor, more than 2,000 windshields were damaged. Whatever was doing this, it wasn't a kid with a BB gun. And it was headed straight for Seattle. April 14th, 1954, Seattle, Washington. The news of yesterday's pelting to the north reached the city as a warning barely hours before it too was hit. Parked cars throughout the east side of the city were hurt. Several police cruisers were injured, including three in front of a manned downtown precinct. By evening, police had brought in every extra dispatcher they could find to try to keep up with the flow of complaints, but there was no way. Hundreds upon hundreds of calls were coming in. At 9 p.m., a Seattle man was driving home, listening to the radio, when he saw it happen. Right before his very eyes, a bubble formed within the glass, expanded and popped leaving the telltale bullseye pit. He immediately pulled off the road and flagged down an officer who confirmed the pit. The next morning, all hell broke loose. Parking lots, car dealerships, even busy highways were hit. Two sheriff's deputies reported they had watched pits form on their patrol car's windshield right in front of them. Seattle police sent out patrols to try to assess the damage. Of 15,000 cars randomly inspected, they found more than 3,000 with damage in city limits. One precinct tried to debunk the phenomenon through a controlled experiment. They bought a new pane of glass and put it on top of the station to show that it wouldn't be damaged. Several hours later, it was. Two pits were found and documented on the fresh plate. Throughout Washington state, people tried in vain to protect their vehicles, covering windshields with blankets or butcher paper or even brown paper bags. In one photo spread in the Post-Intelligencer, a man left his girlfriend with his car while he went to run errands. He gave her a pop gun to protect the windshield. Speaking of newspapers, the pitting epidemic was all they could talk about. 
It's estimated that the story filled 248 column inches in Seattle's newspapers that April 15th. But there was plenty to report. Not only were there new sightings and developments every few hours, but by noon there was also a flood of analysis from various officials and scientists, each of which seemed to have a different explanation for the damage. The sheriff up in Oak Harbor blamed some recent tests in the Pacific. The mayor of Seattle concurred. The city's police chief, H.J. Lawrence, held a press conference to say they had discovered a mysterious magnetic ash on many of the afflicted windshields. Reached for comment, the spokesman for an autoglass company said that their internal investigation suggested the problem was due to an atmospheric disturbance. By the end of the day on the 15th, Mayor Pomeroy telegraphed both Washington Governor Arthur Langley and President Eisenhower asking for emergency assistance. Governor Langley instructed the University of Washington to quickly form a science committee to investigate. And the sooner the better, because the troubles were only continuing to spread. On the 16th, it hit Tacoma. On the 17th, a thousand cars were disfigured all the way across the country, in Canton, Ohio. In Mount Pleasant, Michigan, the panes of greenhouses were hit. By the 19th, there were incidents in Oregon, California, Indiana, Kentucky, Illinois, and Wisconsin. But at the same time, back in Washington, the number of new incidents were falling off, almost like a wave was passing rapidly across the nation. By the end of the next week, that wave had basically receded. And whatever it was that had caused the damage was, it seemed, gone, never to return. In its wake were hundreds of thousands of dollars in damages throughout the country. And one very big question. What the hell just happened? We'll find out after this. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. The Constant is brought to you by BetterHelp. 
Let's be honest. Everybody has something in their life that gets in the way. In the way of success, relationships, or even happiness. BetterHelp Online Counseling is there to remove those things. With BetterHelp, you get access to a counselor personally matched to your needs. Depression, family conflicts, anxiety, self-esteem, grief, even sleep trouble. And if you're not happy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time. They've got 3,000 professional licensed therapists across all 50 states and available worldwide via desktop, mobile web, Android, and iOS apps. With BetterHelp, you connect online at your own time and pace with video, phone, chat, or text services. All of them safe, private, secure, and confidential. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. And because you're a listener to this show, you can get 10% off your first month with discount code the constant. That's one word. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash the constant. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love and start communicating with them in under 24 hours. That's betterhelp.com slash the constant. What was responsible for the damage dealt to thousands of windshields all over the country centered seemingly around Puget Sound in April of 1954? During and after the incident, a host of hypotheses were offered. So let's go through them, starting with the one we've already mentioned, vandals. When Marty and Howard, who, remember, are fictional, first reported the damage, both they and the police of Bellingham assumed that vandals were responsible. And according to one source, the cops even extracted confessions from BB rifle-toting teens. But that same source, which I don't much trust anyway, also says that those confessions were coerced, and the papers in Bellingham and elsewhere don't appear to make any mention of the teens. More importantly, of course, is the question. How could a couple of kids in Bellingham shoot holes in thousands of windshields, some of them more than half a continent away? That may seem like an insurmountable piece of counter-evidence, but on its own it wouldn't be. Crime and vandalism can be contagious, as numerous studies and histories have shown. In the 19th century, there was a sudden wave of graveyard vandalism that spread out across the American East Coast all the way west to Ohio. The idea was carried on the newspapers, and incorrigible scofflaws took it up. There could be something to that with the windshield pitting, but for three things. One, the failure of Anacortes police and Marines to find anyone in their lockdowns. Two, the secret glass plate experiment on the Seattle police roof. No teen misfits, no matter how incorrigible, could have attacked that. And three, if it were vandals, how could that explain the numerous credible witnesses who described watching the pits appear before their eyes? No, we can rule out hoodlums. The next contender is that gray ash, which Seattle Police Chief H.J. Lawrence announced had been found at many of the crime scenes on the 15th. He said that the ash, when touched with the graphite of a pencil, reacted violently. The next day, a meeting of more than 30 law enforcement officials was convened for the affected area, including Roy M. Kelly, police chief for Olympia, and Captain J.W. Johnson of Everett they agreed that the ash was responsible. But nobody knew what the ash was, and more sinister still, nobody knew who had called the meeting. Let's leave the mysterious origins of the meeting aside. 
Could some sort of glass-eating, graphite-reacting ash be the cause? No, definitely not. The day the ash was announced, several scientists commented that there was no material known that could do what was being alleged. The University of Washington science team that the governor commissioned took samples of the ash and analyzed it. They concluded that it was coal residue from nearby factories and power plants. The ash, they said, was always present in the area. It's just that nobody had any reason to notice it before. So, no ash. What's next? How about that mysterious atmospheric disturbance that the autoglass spokesman floated? He wasn't alone. Lots of folks, professionals, academics, and civilians, wondered if some kind of natural event could be at play. Most were unable to go any further in describing that event, though. There was talk of cosmic rays from space, supersonic sound waves, or even a disturbance in the Earth's magnetic field. But there was no evidence of any of those things, and no theory for how any of them might ding windshields anyway. One of the most widely believed explanations, at least according to the many, many newspaper articles, was critters. In Puget Sound, people began blaming sand fleas. Now, contrary to the name, sand fleas aren't insects or arachnids. They're crustaceans of the genus Emerita. They look like a cross between a crab and a shrimp with powerful hind legs and tails with which they dig down underneath the sand. But first... Because glass is made from sand, the theory went that the sand fleas might have gotten their eggs into the windshields. The clever part of this idea is that it explained the bullseye pattern of the pits as well as the witnesses who saw the pits grow before their eyes. This was the result of the eggs hatching and the larval sand fleas escaping the glass. And how did the eggs end up in the windshields in the first place? Well, that's where the theory begins to fall apart. And even if, somehow, the tiny crabs had gotten their eggs inside of Washington windshields and the eggs had inexplicably survived whatever process that was, how did they all know to hatch at exactly the same time? A slightly better critter theory was suggested by people in Provo, Utah, who thought the pitting might be due to acidic insects striking windshields and melting the glass with carminic acid. The upshot of this notion was that, unlike most others, it explained one of the oddest parts about this whole problem. Why only windshields? Why not the windows? Why not houses or offices or, you know, literally anything other than windshields? Sure, there were the greenhouses in Michigan, and there were some scattered reports of pitting in the cockpits of commercial airliners, but other than that, it was all windshields. Acidic bugs splattering on the fronts of cars would offer some kind of reasoning. If only there were some sort of bug acidic enough to pit windshields, which there isn't, and surely not in Washington state. Maybe an even cleverer deduction was made by the Army Corps of Engineers, who noted the other part of the only windshields enigma. It wasn't just that other glass wasn't affected, but neither were other parts of the car. If something, acidic bug or otherwise, was striking the windshields, then why wasn't it also damaging the front of the cars, the hoods or the headlights? Good effort, though, Provo. On to the next hypothesis. And you're going to want to dismiss this out of hand, but hold your scoffing because there might just be something to this one, ridiculous as it sounds. What was pitting the windshields of Washington? Gremlins. <laughs> Gremlins. 
<laughs> oh, murder. <laughs> Gremlin. What a fairy tale. <laughs> I know, I know, but hear me out. Saying gremlins did it might sound like the same thing as blaming elves or fairies or gnomes, but gremlins aren't an ancient species of folklore. They're recent pieces of folklore. The word gremlin only goes back to the 1920s. Folklorist John Hazen said it came from the Old English gremain, meaning to vex, while Carol Rose's Spirits, Fairies, Gnomes, and Goblins, an encyclopedia of the little people, says it's a portmanteau of Grimm, as in Grimm's fairy tales, and Fremlin, as in Fremlin Beer, an English brewery. It seems to me that it's just as likely that Gremlin was a catchy-sounding word with no etymology to speak of. Whatever its roots, the idea of the Gremlin began among English pilots in the First World War. In 1918, The Spectator published a story that claimed the Royal Air Force was beset by, quote, a horde of mysterious and malicious sprites whose whole purpose in life was to bring about as many possible of the inexplicable mishaps which, in those days as now, trouble an airman's life. In 1923, a British pilot crashed into the channel. He claimed that he had been downed by a gremlin who sabotaged his engine and controls. In World War II, reports of gremlins were widespread in the RAF, especially among the Spitfire pilots of the Battle of Britain and their flight crews. Whenever something went mysteriously wrong with the engine or controls of a plane, which was pretty friggin' frequently, the folks knew who was to blame. Gremlins. For a while, it was thought that the gremlins had German sympathies. But soon enough, it was discovered that the Luftwaffe had reported gremlins of their own. One gremlin-affected British pilot was a young airman named Roald Dahl, who blamed the mischievous creatures for his crash landing in northern Africa. Before Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Dahl wrote The Gremlins, a children's novel about little men living on British fighter planes. The book was optioned by Walt Disney and eventually turned into a series of comic books and short films. In 1942, Warner Brothers had their own gremlin, who tried to stymie Allied pilots to the consternation of one Bugs Bunny. Get a load of this, folks. It says here, a constant menace to pilots are the gremlins who wreck planes with their diabolical sabotage. Could gremlins, modern machine-ruining imps, have been responsible for our windshield wreckage? Aside from the fact that gremlins were psychological manifestations of stress and uncertainty, it all adds up. I'm going to rate gremlins above ash, sand fleas, cosmic rays, or BB guns. Not the highest of praise, I'll admit, but this is a toughie. Way harder than the tire slitting. An explanation has to account for why it was windshields and almost only windshields, no other glass and no other parts of the car, why it happened in the Seattle area, and why it spread out to other parts of the country after that, and it has to explain why it happened in April of 1954, not before and not after. It's a tall order, and obviously we've so far come up short. But we still have a couple good suspects left to put under the microscope. Starting with Jim Creek in Arlington, Washington, just 30 or so miles north of Seattle. In the Cascade Mountains of Washington, the Navy opens the world's largest radio transmitter. Its one million watts can flash a message around the world in a tenth of a second. 
General David Sarnoff of RCA congratulates Admiral Kearney, Chief of Naval Operations. An old Marconi operator himself, the general sends the first message using the type key on which he relayed the Titanic disaster messages. A ship or installation anywhere on the globe can be instantly reached from Radio Jim Creek, as the station is known. Answering messages begin coming in over the station's teletype. Built at a cost of $14 million, the station embodies the last word in radio transmission and is a giant step forward in the Navy's network of communications. The Jim Creek Naval Radio Station was and is an aerial antenna that spans the Jim Creek Valley, more than a mile wide. When it was completed in 1953, less than a year before the pitting, it was the most powerful radio transmitter on Earth, 1.2 megawatts. That newsreel footage explains how distant it could relay messages, but the real trick of Jim Creek wasn't about how far it could travel, but how deep. Jim Creek is a VLF transmitter, or very low frequency. As the U.S. Navy was introducing its first fleet of nuclear submarines in the early 1950s, they recognized a problem with communicating to them. Typical radio waves had trouble penetrating underwater, leaving it difficult to relay orders. Jim Creek's low-frequency broadcast fixed that problem, allowing the Navy to shoot signals far off and deep into the Pacific. The first nuclear submarine was the USS Nautilus. It was launched in January of 1954. Could Jim Creek broadcasting at low frequency to the Nautilus have cracked and pitted windshields in April? We've all seen a singer break a glass with their voice on film or in cartoons. But more than a tired comic trope, sound really can break glass. Every material has a natural resonant frequency. If you tap a wine glass, you can hear it. If a sound matches that frequency, the glass will begin to vibrate along with it. And since glass is quite brittle, if the sound is powerful enough, the glass will eventually crack or even shatter. Pretty neat, huh? Unfortunately, there are a whole bunch of reasons that we can discount this idea too. For starters, the Nautilus was launched in January of 54, but it didn't actually get out of port for more than a year after that. More importantly, the very low frequency of Jim Creek's broadcast would mean that a car windshield would have to be very long to vibrate to it. Like, a couple of miles long. And, of all the places that cars were damaged throughout Washington, Jim Creek and Arlington next door weren't among them. But believe it or not, we're getting closer to the true explanation. And the next step in that journey will take us almost all the way around the Pacific to Bikini Atoll in the Marshall Islands. At 6.45 a.m. on March 1st, 1954, three weeks before the first pittings were reported in Bellingham, Washington, Captain Oishi Matasichi and his crew of 23 were fishing 80 miles east of Bikini when they saw something. Oishi said, A yellow flash poured through the porthole. Wondering what had happened, I jumped up from the bunk near the door, ran out on the deck, and I was astonished. Bridge, sky, and sea burst into view, painted in flaming sunset colors. I looked around in a daze. I was totally at a loss. The crew didn't know it, but what they'd just seen was Castle Bravo, 
On November 1, 1952, the U.S. military detonated Ivy Mike, the world's first thermonuclear hydrogen fusion bomb. With a yield of 10.4 megatons, Ivy Mike was 700 times more powerful than Little Boy, the bomb dropped on Hiroshima. But it was big and clunky and couldn't be dropped from any plane or shot from a missile. America would need a different design if they wanted to make the H-bomb deliverable. And America did want that very much. So, on March 1st, 1954, they tested Castle Bravo. Castle Bravo was supposed to be six megatons, but the scientists behind its design had failed to account for the full reaction of its lithium deuteride fuel. Instead of six megatons, Castle Bravo yielded 15, the largest nuclear explosion in the world up until that point, and the largest ever tested by the United States. The flash, witnessed by the crew of the Fukuru Maru fishing boat, was the four-and-a-half-mile-wide mushroom cloud, which rose 130,000 feet above sea level and left a crater on the ocean floor 250 feet deep and 6,500 feet across. But Castle Bravo wasn't just bigger than anticipated. It was also dirtier. Far dirtier. Immediately after the explosion, huge quantities of radioactive fallout began floating eastwards carried by the Pacific trade winds. Fine, snow-like powder fell over the people of the Rongelap, Uteric, and Allegheny Atolls, and over U.S. naval observers on Rongerik Atoll. It took several days for the Navy to evacuate the peoples of the Marshall Islands. The National Cancer Institute has estimated that Castle Bravo is responsible for more than half the cancer cases on Rongelap in the last 65 years. The U.S. has paid out more than a billion dollars in restitution to the Marshallese in that time, an amount that advocates and analysts say is far too little. Similarly, the sailors present on Rongerik have reported and sued on account of tumors, cancers, and lung diseases. Still, the Navy would have liked to keep Castle Bravo secret. Sailors weren't allowed to talk, and the Marshallese didn't have anyone to talk to, so they might have succeeded in keeping the whole mess under wraps, if it weren't for the Fukuro Maru. An hour and a half after Captain Oishi Matsuchi saw the explosion, the fallout reached the boat. The crew didn't know what it was, but after they returned to Japan, several of them began showing signs of radiation sickness. In a few weeks, one of them had died. By the time it was understood what was happening to the crew of the Fukuromaru, their catch, which was also irradiated, had already been sold and disseminated across the country. For weeks, Japanese fish markets sat empty and rotting. Relations between the Japanese and American governments were strained. There was no hiding what had happened at Bikini. The Castle Bravo explosion was an enormous tragedy and a serious geopolitical Rubicon. It introduced the term fallout to the public. It led to the creation of a UN agency to oversee radioactive contamination. It was Castle Bravo that precipitated the eventual signing of the Limited Test Ban Treaty in 1963. But before any of that, the effects of Castle Bravo were going to hit Seattle, Washington in April of 1954. From almost the beginning, 
Authorities throughout Puget Sound suspected that the Castle Bravo test was to blame for the scores of dinged windshields throughout the area. On April 15th, during the press conference at which he noted the mysterious ash, Seattle Police Chief H.J. Lawrence told the public that his forces suspected the cause was nuclear. The sheriff in Oak Harbor had the same thing to say. In fact, while there were all kinds of opinions on what to blame, from sand fleas to sound waves to gremlins, polling on April 19th showed more than half of Seattle residents understood the problem to be radioactive in nature. Even after Geiger counters were deployed by the Navy, and even after they showed no increased levels of radiation, most folks still knew that the cause of the trouble had to be Castle Bravo. If it wasn't the fallout itself, some reasoned, then it must be that the force of the blast had loosed some tiny fossilized corals from beneath the sea, firing them with such force that they crossed the Pacific before lodging within Seattle windshields. At least, that was the explanation given by engineers from Boeing Aeronautical. This is ridiculous, right? Bomb-blasted corals? Navy radio signals? Acidic bugs? None of this holds up to even perusal scrutiny. And people were out of theories. They'd have to wait until June 10th, when the Science Committee at University of Washington finally released their report. Maybe the most important observation the U of W researchers made, which everybody else had missed, was a pattern. They noticed that a certain kind of car was predominantly affected by the pitting. Old ones. New cars were barely reported at all. But the older they got, the more likely a car was to be damaged. Even the victimized car lots bore this out. It was only used car lots that were hit. New car dealerships were fine. So then the question was, what was different about old windshields? And the answer was right there in the question. They were old. Because the University of Washington examination determined that what was damaging thousands of windshields throughout the greater Seattle area was nothing. Nothing. The windshields that were pitted had already been pitted in the regular course of use over years. It's just that nobody had noticed until they heard about the epidemic, at which point they started looking too. And when they looked, they saw that they were also victims. A 1958 study by doctors Medalia and Larson in the American Sociological Review went further. They analyzed the way the panic spread through the newspapers, radio, and television. They looked at who was affected and for how long, and they came to a number of interesting conclusions. Before the Seattle windshield pitting epidemic of 1954, mass delusions were believed to come in waves where a delusion passed initially through a pilot wave of suggestibility, exacerbated by incomplete reporting, before breaking against a second wave of contra-suggestibility, where skepticism became the dominant force, dispelling the idea. On its surface, the windshield epidemic seemed to back up that idea. At the height of the panic on April 15th, it was everywhere, the main focus of the community and the media, but by the 19th, the whole frou-for-all was essentially dissolved. Reports of new damage slowed to a trickle, and newspapers all but abandoned the story. Yet Medalia and Larson's research showed that something else was going on. Their polling showed 
that even weeks after the apex of the pitting event, people still believed in it. They just weren't focused on it anymore. Medallia and Larson's hypothesis for what happened in April of 1954 does relate to Castle Bravo. Specifically, it has to do with the string of disturbing headlines that played out in the newspapers for the weeks leading up to April 15th. Headlines like H-bomb victims face death or witness says hydrogen test out of control. The tension and stress over reports of creeping radioactive doom built and built until, finally, they found a release valve. Marty's Bellingham, Washington windshield pits. That release valve gave Americans who were suffering through a low-grade, intangible, contagious terror a physical object into which they could put their concerns. For all those fearful of what the consequences of Castle Bravo would be, dinged windshields provided not really so much a fear as a relief. The glass might be imperiled, but the people and the fish were going to be fine. A similar situation happened a decade before, when the Royal Air Force were facing down the Luftwaffe at the Battle of Britain. Faced with difficult odds and an innumerable host of potentially fatal flaws, the pilots and mechanics of the RAF manifested little demons into which they placed their anxieties, boosting their morale and helping them get through the stress of uncertain times. So what do you know? It was gremlins, after all. Music for today's episode by Blue Dot Sessions and Lee Rose Bear. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you're feeling generous, maybe think about going to patreon.com slash the constant and becoming a supporter. All supporters of all levels get access to the Constant Secret Feed, a second exclusive podcast. The latest Secret Feed episode is about Stellar's sea ape, a mysterious animal that zoologists have been trying to find for 250 years. Recommendations are the number one way people find the Constant, so if you know someone who might like us, please tell them. Thanks so much. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, home to the L.H. Selman Glass Gallery, the world's only museum dedicated to glass, paperweights. This has been The Constant. Fine, snow-like powder fell over the people of the Rongelap, Uteric, and Allegheny atolls and over U.S. naval observers on Rongerick Atoll. Oh, boy, boy, that sentence... That sentence is just a whole bunch of words that aren't words. And that's the problem with that. They just keep coming. Also, the word atoll to me is just nearly impossible to get out if there's anything preceding it at all. Like, it has to be a sentence of its own. Atoll is just a thing that exists entirely separately for the rest of the world. Baby, I don't like these words. Okay. Hey, I bet that was a... Say, do you think that... Hey, could that have been a... 
gremlin. It ain't Vendor! 